What is up, Forward Madison fans? This is Rob Chappell, and you are listening to Talkin' Flock, episode number 12. If you're listening on a device of any kind, please go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe. Hit that subscribe button so you can get every episode as it comes in. Hit that rate and review if you have an Apple uh, device. That helps us a lot. Kind of gooses us up the algorithm a little bit. And as always, follow us on Twitter. We're at Talkin' Flock. And with me, as always, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Jeremy Rushing. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, there's a reason why we flipped this this week, where Rob's going to do a majority of the talking, because uh, similar to another Forward Madison podcast out there, um, the host does not have a voice. Um, there is a... But, <laughs> but we're powering through, Rob. We we're, are, we're as always. This week, um, and we're recording on Tuesday. We normally record on Mondays. Uh-huh. This episode, to be honest, to kind of peel back the curtain, has seemed snake bit from the get-go. We had to delay our interview with Jeff. I lost my voice. My computer is, I don't know how long it's going to hold on today because it's having issues of its own. <laughs> so we'll see We'll see what we can do here. And hopefully we can get through this and give you at least something to listen to here uh, Tuesday we afternoon. Are- we there, there's a there's a bad case of podcaster throat going around, but we are going to power through it. Uh, it's fine. I don't, you know, I'm not sure anybody wants to linger too long on that match result anyway. So we will push through it, and we will have a good podcast for you, uh, and hopefully we'll have a win to talk about uh, next week. Now you mentioned uh, interview with Jeff, our guest in the interview segment uh, after we talk through the match uh, and everything else is going to be Jeff Ruder, who if you are on soccer Twitter. You know, he is so uh, present on soccer Twitter. I didn't even realize I don't I didn't actually follow him on Twitter till yesterday. Yet he's always in my Twitter feed. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. He's the soccer correspondent, one of the lead soccer correspondents for The Athletic. Uh, And we're going to talk about his uh, massive story this week on the USL midseason meetings and what that might mean for the future of this league. And I want to I want to urge everybody, don't be like the flock and freeloaders where you're on the side and the buildings next to Bree Stevens field, watching the game for free. You know, you'll, you'll hear his insight. You'll hear everything he has to report, but please go to the athletic pay the, the few bucks a month. Uh, it's well worth it. Uh, so before we get to that though, let's get into it. Let's talk about this dispiriting, frustrating one, one draw. That was, it was really a good felt really good for about a hundred minutes. Right. Yeah. Uh, until the very, very yeah. end here. So, um, Andrew Schmidt, president of the flock on Twitter, referred to this as one of my new favorite phases, phrases, shambolic officiating. Uh, did you notice that, that during the course That's of the such game? such a great word. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, that, I, um, I was trying to think of a word that would describe <laughs> what that was like and i couldn't think of one so shambolic works perfectly because that's not a word that would even pop into my head at all yeah so that's uh that, that's a great way to describe it yeah and, and and it wasn't just the stoppage time which we will talk about in a minute um but it was the 10 yellow cards and apparently this guy i haven't been able to confirm the numbers but apparently this referee jervis antanaga has a habit of handing out yellow cards. Anytime somebody's handing out yellow cards early in a match, it's not like the match has gotten out of hand and he's trying to regain control of it. It's like he's wants to decide the outcome of this match. Yes. Right. He, he wants, wants to, he wants, and some, some referees, some officials do this. Yep. 
Um, yep. Not to out myself, I have wor- loosely worked for and with um, organizations within the officiating community, specifically in soccer. And there are refs who do this, who try to mm-hmm. make it about themselves. They're very ego driven. And uh, this was definitely a case of that. Yeah, he, he definitely wanted to have an impact on the match, which is not what a referee should be doing. But uh, but let's talk about let's 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 start with the good, right? The first half looks like the Ford Madison we saw in the first half of the season, right? They're holding possession, they're being really smart, they're making really nice, crisp passes that are um, not with not a lot of space, right? They're making really nice pinpoint passes. They're they're being really creative. They're being direct. Which I liked. Uh, they weren't doing the thing where they're down the side looking for a cross. They were playing direct. They were, they were using the entire field, um, and that felt really good. Even even leading up to the goal, even before they had a goal, fifteen minutes in, I was like, okay, these guys are back. Um, they're creating chances. Now, the one thing they did differently is they did not take a bunch of low percentage shots. They weren't ripping shots every time. They ended the game with only ten shots and six on target, but they were good chances. Right. And yeah. it felt like you were on the front foot for 99 minutes of this match. Yeah. And this is, again, kind of a, a throwback to early this season, what we saw from, mm-hmm. from Ford Madison. Um, the only difference now, it seems the goals are coming a little bit more now. Um, and we saw yeah. that with, uh, with the Noah Fusan goal, which was oh, a beauty. Fantastic. That's one of the better goals. I mean, we talked, I believe, on the first or second episode how USL League One was kind of bangers only. At one point this season, where every goal seemed to be a five-star goal, yep. um, this was right up there uh, from Fusan. An excellent individual effort. Yes. I mean, he had a. I mean, yeah, credit to Noah for making it happen. But also, what is the Fort Lauderdale defense doing? He just has all the space in the world to run up it. and take that shot. It's like they're just moving out of his way, well, and uh, and he finishes beautifully. And I, and I, you know, honestly, now that you say that, I hadn't thought about this before, but. Now you say that, I wonder if that, that was kind of a scouting thing that they thought he wasn't going to score because he hasn't yet this year where they've got their eye on Jake Keegan and maybe Derek Gebhardt, but maybe they don't have their eye on Noah Fusan because as mm-hmm. this goal came out of nothing, right? Jero just plays the ball forward, just past the center line. They, and, they, and like you said, they drop back, they drop off. They, nobody challenged the ball. And they just Almost Fusan. from the center line to yeah. the top of the 18. That's yep. how far we yeah. ran. That's crazy. And, um, and Javier Casas, who is making his USL League One debut uh, on loan from Chicago, is on the is kind of overlapping to the left, which meant Brian Rosales, the the right back for Vaudeville, had to keep an eye on him, and and was like more concerned about Casas than he was about Fusan, which tells you what how much they didn't respect Fusan, right? Uh, and and yeah. Fusan was like, yeah. okay, you're not going to challenge me, I'm going to take it, and he kind of and, and, and instead of making the pass to the left. So that Casas could look for a cross. Fusan decides to take it direct, takes two touches across the top of the box, and unleashes just a beast of a shot into the far top and corner. Kind of, and it, was, it was gorgeous. And that's kind of what I, I referenced a couple episodes ago in terms of just having this team put their best attacking players on the field at once. You yes. make the defense decide yes. what to do, who to focus on, who to uh, you know, who who to apply pressure to, who to back off of. And if you have enough great goal scorers on the field, one of them is going to find themselves in a good position to score, as Noah Fusan did there. Yes, yes. And, and, and credit to Fusan for having the confidence, even though it hasn't come for him yet this year, and and, and he struggled last year scoring as well, uh, but to have the confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to take this. 
and, and, and to not let the last several games where he's you know, missed a few get to him. And and I want I'm hoping that this um that, that boosts his confidence even further to continue to to push. Um and so you know, great goal for him, great goal for the team. Uh the here, here's a fun fact for you. The, the, if you're watching on on ESPN Plus, the big celebration on the sideline, he ran straight over to the subs and they were all just, you know, mobbing him and everything. And you see a really big guy in the background, like holding his arms up, celebrating. That big guy is former UW Badgers linebacker and current Dane County Sheriff, <laughs> Calvin Barrett. It's just so fun to see. Like, oh, look that's at you know, who, who you see on the sidelines at these games. It's great. I love it. That that's such a like a Wisconsin thing, I feel like. Former regional yeah. celebrity now works like in the community. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um so but in the second half though of this one, Fort Lauderdale seemed to grow into the game a little bit. And, and I couldn't quite tell. It didn't seem to me like Madison took a step back as much as Fort Lauderdale actually started to play better. Did, did you feel that way too? Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, kind of what we saw from the first match uh, against Fort Lauderdale, we kind of saw the same kind of range of quality from them too. Like we saw some really mm-hmm. bad moments. We saw some really good yeah. moments from them. Um, yeah. So inconsistency is kind of something I expected to see coming in. And we definitely saw that, but it was, it was more consistent in the inconsistency where they started kind of on the back foot and grew, like you mentioned, grew into the game. Mm-hmm. And as the yeah. game went longer, they started to play better. Um, and sort of turn the tide a little bit. They did. And Vincent Evans, their their main goal scoring threat, started to get a little bit more assertive in the second half. He almost scored in a, you know, right around the seventieth minute or so. Um, you know, but but Madison's t- credit to the back line, they they held up for the most part, and they did. Um, they were able to manage that um, that in, increase in quality from Fort Lauderdale until the moment we all don't want to talk about. But we get to the end of the regulation period and, and they put up eight minutes of stoppage time, which seemed like a lot. But I actually, this, because I'm that guy, I actually watched the entire second half with a stopwatch again uh, and, and clocked the stoppages and eight minutes was actually more or less correct for yes. to add, and- as the initial stoppage time. And that's something I I think um, I saw too in terms of like based off the amount of stoppage time there was in the half, that was a proper amount of stoppage time to give. But the problem is there shouldn't have been that much stoppage time in the second half itself. Like there shouldn't have been that many stoppages and that much time of stoppage um, within the half itself to create that eight minutes that we saw because of the constant yellow cards, the constant whistles. Um, it was really it, it got annoying by the end of the match, and I expected yep. a boatload of stoppage time when we got there. Yeah, and there was a um, and there were a couple of injuries, which you understand. Uh, there were no goals, but there, like you said, there was like five or six yellow cards, which the guidelines say are supposed to be like thirty seconds to a minute for each yellow card. And then also there was a weird like play stopped for two minutes that was for no reason, like that was never explained. Like th- there was a sub getting ready. And there was a goal kick coming, and nothing happened for two full minutes, and they didn't even bring the sub on. And mm-hmm. then, so there's two minutes of stoppage, and then they play for a minute, and then there's a three minute hydration break. Like, what are you doing? It was, and it's not like there's VAR in League One, so it's not like they were like checking <laughs> right. something or you know no. something like that. So it's very, yeah, very odd. I guess. It was very weird. Um, but then, and then, and then it's compounded 
by the fact that at the end of the eight minutes, Jiro is laying on his back. Uh, he's just been fouled. And every other ref in the world would have let Madison take that restart and blown it dead. Hmm. Uh, but Atanaga decides that there's that he's adding three minutes or how whatever the you know heck whatever the heck yeah. <laughs> amount of time he wants to add on for whatever reason because there's been a couple of stoppages during stoppage time and when you have mm-hmm. eight minutes of stoppage time there's more opportunity for somebody to go down with a little knock and take another minute and then you don't have mm-hmm. to add that additional minute on no but you don't time, I'm going to literally interpret. Law seven, which is the duration of the match. I'm going to literally interpret it so that every time play stops, I'm going to keep, I'm going to add it on at the end. And you don't have to do that. And nobody else does. No, but they don't. So in the 100th minute, um, Fort Lauderdale is desperately pushing forward. Their they're, ball's just bounding around the box. They're doing that thing where that never really works, where you're just trying to toss it in there and with as many bodies as you can. Uh, and um, Rosales pops a, you know, I don't even know if you call it a cross. It was more like a blob. And Mitchell Curry scores on a beautiful volley. Take nothing away from his finish. That man can score goals. Um, but here's the thing several things can be true here. First of all, the game should have been over, right? We know that. But secondly, you got three Madison guys standing there watching the ball while Mitchell Curry runs in between them and finishes it. Diaz, Gebhard, and Malloy all just kind of standing still yeah. on their heels because they're totally gassed. It's 90 degrees or whatever still. And, and you're, just, you're waiting for the whistle to blow. They like, genuinely any, think any soccer player who has ever played will tell yes. you when you get to the 99th minute, yes. you are just waiting for the whistle to blow. Like that's really all the all, all it comes down to. So, yes, it was lackadaisical defending within that time, but can you really blame them? Not Maybe really. Minute mark, like, no. come on. No, and, and you'd also say that Madison maybe could have scored one more in this first half. Uh, the, there's not much to criticize in their play in the first or in the in the first 99 minutes. There's very little to criticize about Madison's play, so it's hard to say like, well, if you would have scored one more. Uh, but I will say that uh, Jiro Dangier scored from about 40 yards out. Uh, Keegan had a really good opportunity, and the Fort Lauderdale goalkeeper stood up and kept it at one, which gave Fort Lauderdale the opportunity to finish after the referee decided to let the game run for literally 100 minutes. And, by the way, after the goal, he let it run for another minute and a half. And Madison Dengner got a winner at the other end in the 103rd minute or something. It was just absurd the way he let it run. Yeah. But anyway. I'm I'm, going to be the guy to go there in terms of you get a second goal, you don't even put yourself in that situation. Right? I think yep. we fully expect if, if we're going 103 plus minutes that you should expect this forward Madison team to put a Kirk number on the board. But with the way they're set up, with the way the, the pieces they have in place, the amount of attacking quality they have, you expect them to get a Kirk number if you play that long. So I, I will go there. I agree that the whistle should have been blown. It should have been a 1-0 win. If, we, if that happens, we're having a totally different conversation. But I do think that it, I, I am – the I try, I go out of my way to not blame officials and not blame referees because as a player, when I played, you know, I played baseball, basketball, or I was lucky enough to have coaches who always say, you determine the outcome of the match, the game, not the yep. officials. You know, yep. you never, never blame the official name, never blame the ref because you always could have done more, right? 
And yep. so when I look at this, yes, there was egregious officiating. And yes, there should not have been that long of stop. But at the end of the day, you still control your own destiny. And you still control what happens to you within the match. And there's still yeah. the responsibility is still kind of on your shoulders in terms of the outcome. Yeah, and I, I would imagine Carl Craig would tell you the same thing. And I would imagine Jake Keegan would tell you the same thing. And all the guys would tell you the same thing. And, and it's it's a rough one to handle. You still get a point out of it. Um, you still are fourth in the table in terms of points per game. You've you know that that goal dropped him from fifth to eighth in the actual table. But that table is still so disproportionate in terms of the number of games yeah, played. It really matters. Um, so you know you, you still you, you feel and and you watched ninety nine minutes of really good football. Like they played well, they played better yes. than they have in the past month. I think. Yes. Um, so that's it's. I think it's overall a positive. It, it felt horrible in the, at the moment. Uh, Neil, uh, this is Coach Neil uh, Lavity, did uh, get a red card for his um, expression of his point of view <laughs> after, after the hundredth minute. Uh, so I don't know. And I asked him, but I haven't heard back. And I don't know. Does that mean he is not going to be present as you know, a player? If you get a red card, you're out for the next match. I don't know if that same is true of coaches or what, but, but anyway, he, um, the, the, the referee did not appreciate his opinion, <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> but here we are. And it, it, it was, a, I think a good performance. I think you take a lot of positive from it. Uh, even though you know that the officiating was was pretty terrible, and it was all night. It wasn't. We're not just complaining about the stoppage time. It was the yellow cards. It was Jiro's. The yellow card Jiro got was not even a foul. No, it was Clearly not. Clearly stepped in, made a clean, good tackle, and he got it. Not only a foul, but a yellow card. It was absurd. Yeah. And uh, now, as you're looking forward, big stretch coming up uh, at Chattanooga. Yeah. On Saturday, yep, that's their first and, time seeing them. They're the, I think, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, they're the last team we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I think so right? as well. And then the following Saturday, you're back at Omaha. So, if you're looking at the points per game standings, these are the top two teams in the table right now, right? Greenville still third. Yep. If you're looking at points per game. Yes. Yep. So yep. this and, is and that, big. Yep. And it's an opportunity to again. We've kind of we've we've said this numerous times, so I feel like we're you know talking in circles about it. But you know, turn the tide. You put a good, put together a good performance on the road against one of the top teams. You, yep. Maybe you come out with a point. Maybe you come out with three. But you know that that's a moment. That's a momentum changer, um, especially as we talked about last week. When you are looking at the potential of being maybe one of the bottom tier teams in the playoffs. Again, we have a long time to go. But as of now, as we mentioned, the way the table looks, just in general, Domingos are on the outside looking in right now. So if you look at the possibility of playing at Chattanooga or playing in Omaha. You know, in the playoffs, whether it's the first or second round, the results in the regular season, just from a, a mentality standpoint, could play a factor in terms of how these teams confidence-wise come into a match like that. So there are a lot of reasons why these next two matches are huge. Obviously, you need to get points to kind of get back up into that standing, but also, um, you know, just to prove to yourself that you can continue to compete against these clubs. Yeah, yep, totally. It's, uh, it's really important, and I think, and I would hope, that with, with the addition of a couple of uh, those Lonies, Alex Monis and uh, Javier Casas, who played really well, by the way, um, mm -hmm. yes. you know, a, a little bit of just some more fresh legs, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and hopefully a little bit of swagger coming out of this match. Uh, you know, we'll be talking 
really positive things in a couple of weeks. All right. So I know we usually format it where, you know, we do this. Now we would cut to the interview and then do our shout outs and fun fact afterwards. But being as, you know, a lot of factors <laughs> have gone into the delaying this episode and go working in this episode. We're just going to try to get the rest of this done. So that way we can get this. Let's this, just get this, this over with. So let's go into right into shout outs, Rob. Who's your first? Um, I got a double shout out, I think. Um, uh, Javier Casas Jr., he, this is not his pro debut. He, he's a homegrown academy player for Chicago Fire. He has made one appearance with that senior team, but this is his League One debut. Um, I thought he, uh, it, with Christian Enriquez getting the night off, uh, I think he brought that same level of energy to the midfield and and has a couple of really nice touches, for especially for an 18-year-old kid. Uh, but alongside him, also Jiro. I got to shout out Jiro. He was dynamic, as he always is, but he was – like he was going by defenders like they were standing still. He had that one shot from 40 yards out that, that would have put him up 2-0, uh, except for a magnificent no. save. Uh, and he's been, been been named to the team of the week. Uh, so shout out to those two players on the field. Um, my first shout out is obviously Noah Fusan. Uh, great yep. individual effort for the goal. Um, ended up being a big one. As uh, you know, if, if you give up the winning goal in the 100th minute, oh my God. that's obviously – yeah, so uh, credit to him for for giving the Mingos the lead and, and doing it in such an incredible fashion. Again, just what a goal. Go, go. If you haven't seen it, just go find the highlights. It would uh, be it, it would be goal of the week, except that Robbie Cristo for North Carolina scored from the center circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you can't Yeah, that was like, I think that was on Sports Center Top 10. So that's definitely uh, yeah. going to be goal of the week. Yep, yep. For sure. Uh, my second is for Jacques St. John, who is the, the the play-by-play guy that does most of Madison's games. And it's funny that, that you know, these are – it's kind of a development league for commentators too, it yeah. seems like. In the first year, yeah. the commentary was just terrible. And, I mean, you could tell they were enthusiastic and into it and stuff, but but they've gotten so much better over the, over the three seasons. And his call on both goals, his call on both goals was – Wonderful. Noah Fusan's goal was, oh my word, magnificent. You know, that's just iconic. Yeah. And, and then <laughs> and I don't I don't know if he has this queued up or what, but Fort Lauderdale makes a point appear out of a magical hat in Madison. Like that's just a perfect that. call on a terrible goal for us, and we feel awful about it. But but when we talk about these games that are decided in stoppage time and how exciting that is, and to have a great call like that, shout out to him. Yeah, for my money, he's the uh, he's the best uh, play-by-play guy that ESPN Plus has right now, and it's it's great to have him on a majority of the Madison matches too because yep. he, he does good work. Uh, my second shout out, and we will talk to Jeff Ruder about this during our interview in just a few minutes. But the USL um, in their uh, midseason meetings really kind of put the ball in motion towards um, potentially, you know, instituting a pro rel system in the US with the USL. Obviously, a lot of things have to happen. A, you have to build out USL League One to really make that feasible and make that happen. But at the same time, they are discussing this as something that, you know, it's not a hypothetical. It's not really even an idea at this point anymore. It's something that, like, we, we're going to put together a proposal or we're going to take proposals on this. We're going to move forward on one. Uh, when I, I can't remember what Jeff said. You'll, you'll hear the timeline from Jeff better during the interview. We're going to move forward on one of these proposals, and this is something that, that we are going to invest in 
a pro rail system in the United States. Um, is it perfect? No. Is it our, our ideal version of it? No. Is it the way they do it in England? No. In Europe? No. But it's something and it's a path toward, um, you know, making um, things maybe just a, just a tad bit more open in the American soccer system. Just uh-huh. having that option. Yeah, and what what I kind of came away from talking with Jeff and and stay and listen for the whole interview with Jeff. It's really good, um, but that it, it's we're not trying to be Europe, right? We're trying to do this thing that that European football clubs have kind of invented, and we're doing it our way. And I, I think that's I'm I am so stoked and excited about that. Uh, my third final shout out is to Ricardo Pepe, who to longtime Mingo fans will remember as. Uh, the, the bane of the existence of every club in USL League One in 2019. As yes. a 16-year-old for North Texas, as a Dallas FC Academy product, he actually signed with Dallas halfway through that season as a 16-year-old and then played most of the season with then on loan with North Texas. Uh, he was the youngest player. I think he might have been the first player to score a hat-trick in League One, uh, certainly the youngest to do it still. Uh, and this past week, he became the youngest player in MLS history to score a hat trick when he scored a hat trick for uh, Dallas, uh, he's I think he I think he's got men's national team written all over him. Uh, really exciting player to watch. FC Dallas actually changed their name on Twitter to FC Ricardo Pepe. Oh, did they? Uh, well, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just another in a long line of great prospects that come through that FC Dallas system. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how much they churn out European talent. Um, incredible. Um, my third and final shout out is for everyone who participated in the Ford Madison fantasy camp. Uh, this is really cool. And Rob, you have a little bit more on this when we talk about what's happening in the community and off the field, but, um, just a really cool opportunity for, uh, for people to, you know, live a day in the life of Ford Madison. What's, yeah. what's a little training? What do you, what do they go through every day? You know, they get a Jersey, they get to dress in the locker room. Like it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and shout out to um to the players too who <laughs> and, and and the of course Ford Bass and Twitter account, uh where they had you know Josiah Trimmingham is singing in the flock and uh Eric Leonard's a gaffer for one of the teams and uh just seemed like a lot of fun all around. Yeah, good times. All right. So um elaborate a little bit on that, Rob. Uh you know what's happening yeah. in the community and off the field. Yeah, uh, in addition to that that fantasy camp, which is fantastic, and, and just a chance, like you said, to get uh, fans and soccer lovers onto the pitch and uh, you know up close and personal with the players, I think that this club has been so uh, focused on that community connection, and it's just so much um, better and, and much more enriching experience to be a fan and a supporter when you feel like you know these guys, you know? Um, I think that's incredibly smart of the club to do that. And I, and I don't know if they didn't invent it. They're not the only ones to do it, but that's, I hope they continue to do that. But the other thing um, that's happening off the field is this Saturday on July 31st, the Flock Soccer Foundation is hosting a FIFA tournament. Uh, this is the FIFA on uh, Xbox One. And uh, this is the, the final push to get this uh power chair bought for the Wisconsin Warriors, particularly for Ollie, the, the player who wants to join that club. Um, I talked with Liam Smith, the uh, the president of the board of the Flock Soccer Foundation the other day. And he's, and last when I talked to him, they were like less than $500 away from their goal, which is fantastic. So shout out to everybody who's chipped in for that. 
Um, they, yeah. there's, there is twelve thousand uh, dollars, which is fantastic. And so then this is kind of the last push to polish that off. Plus anything else, we'll just go into the next project, right? So it's twenty five dollars uh, to as a donation to benefit the Wisconsin Warriors. Um, to join this this uh, thing that happens 12 to 3 p.m. at the Cooper's Tavern on July 31st. That's Saturday. Uh, it's going to be 24 players, double elimination, 12 minutes per game. Uh, personal controller is allowed, so bring your own controller that your thumbs are attuned to. Um, and uh, the prizes for the winners will be a, a signed ball uh, uh, by the club, a signed scarf, a signed game day poster, and more, more prizes to be announced. So it should just be a lot of fun. And uh, all the money will, again will benefit Wisconsin Warriors uh, and um, you know Fox Flock Soccer Foundation. I think we should have Liam or somebody from the foundation on at some point. They've got some big, uh, really exciting things in the works. Absolutely, hundred percent echo that. All right, and now finally, Rob, uh, let's do our full Mingo fun fact. Okay, this is obscure even for me. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Phil Brino. Had actually a really good game. He's, he he had a, a better game this weekend. We didn't talk about that, but he had a really couple really important, nice saves, um, and also some really smart and good distribution. Uh, he is a goalkeeper from the great state of Maryland. If you go to a Fort Madison match, one of the fans you will always see at every match is a guy named Scott McDonald who is also a goalkeeper from Maryland. He is currently our um, county clerk. He has, you know, obviously been right in the middle of running elections. He was right in the middle of the the marriage equality when that was happening a few years ago. And, uh, and he's always at the games. And he is only in Madison because he came from Maryland to play goalkeeper for the Wisconsin Badgers back in the early 1980s and never left. So in the stadium... Every home match, you have two goalkeepers from Maryland. There you go. Love I don't know how fun that fact that, is, but that's what I got this That week. is That's obscure, but that, I love <laughs> that. Like, that's that's fantastic. All right. Um, we're going to cut this off before I lose my voice and before the stream cuts yes. out, before anything else goes wrong, that could possibly go wrong. <laughs> um, we did hit the record button before we started, so this is going to be there to edit and post. Um, we appreciate you listening. Yeah, there's my daughter, Gabby, giving you one last goodbye here. That's another thing working against us is I, our, our daycare is closed today. So I have the kids home trying to do this too. So, um, but, but we made it happen. We made it here. Uh, we yeah. hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Flock. We're not done yet though. Stick around for our interview with Jeff Reuter from The Athletic. And that will end the episode this week. Have a great week, everybody. All right, it is time to welcome in uh, the one of the lead soccer writers for The Athletic. Uh, he started here in the Twin Cities covering Minnesota United. Now it has expanded that coverage nationwide. One of the beats he's on is actually the United Soccer League beat, and he had a major scoop from the midseason meetings that they had in San Antonio. So welcome on to Talk and Flock, Mr. Jeff Reuter. Jeff, how you doing? Doing well. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the place where I'm supposed to talk about my full wedding guest list. After one of your previous guests outed uh, that my <laughs> wedding reception helped link him toward a future job. But uh, regardless, whether or not that's the case, happy to be on. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, we'll we'll run through that guest list. I actually have it here in front of me. Carl, Carl forwarded <laughs> me uh, what he had on you. So uh, 
Right. Uh, for those of you yeah. who don't know, uh, Carl Craig uh, and Ford Madison were kind of linked up at, at Jeff's wedding reception. So uh, inter- interesting talk, uh, talk there. Go back to episode one of Talking Flock to check out that conversation with Carl and learn more about that. But Jeff, we're bringing you on to talk about kind of the latest article you had in The Athletic about kind of the, the future of the USL. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of big talking points coming out of the USL midseason meetings in San Antonio. So my first question is, what news, if any, usually comes out of these midseason meetings? And mm-hmm. how was this go around different? Yeah, usually there's more that comes from the winter. So there, there are two summits at the USL. There's the mid-year meetings and then there's the winter summit. The winter summit obviously is in the offseason. It's about three, four weeks after League One and the championship both have their finals in a normal year. And then it's it's a lot of decompress. What did we learn from the previous season? What are we working on for the next season? It, it is very year by year still the planning at lower division soccer at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and the mid-year meeting then is much more expansion heavy. It is, it is looking at where are these markets that are going to be coming in for league one, where are the markets that the championship is looking at, are there any team sales that are in play here? Uh, I think at the, the mid-year summit, a couple of years ago, it was the USL Academy league was just launching at that point. And so it was looking at the youth development structure, which is now in place for the USL. Uh, this of course, uh, blows the pants off of any of those expectations. And mm-hmm. I, I think that going into it, there wasn't even a sense from sources at clubs in both levels uh, second and third division, that this was going to be big. I remember speaking with uh, three different sources at the midpoint of that board of governors meeting where the news ended up coming out. And, and all three of them were like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm going back to my, to Wi-Fi so that I can reinstall the Sudoku app on my phone. So I have something that I can do in the second half of these meetings. Cause a lot of the times, frankly, they're talking about a lot of the same topics, but they're not giving yeah major updates yet they're saying yes we're working on it yes we're in a good financial standing yes we have these advertisers coming on but it's not something where it really is like a glued or onto the edge of your seat sort of thing but then when you're talking about flipping the calendar potentially to play fall to spring when you're talking about promotion and relegation wanting not just the concept but wanting a model to vote on of how this could work by december and then you throw in things like the League's Cup, which has been wanted for quite some time by clubs, but had never really been embraced by the league until these meetings. When you talk about some of these other factors that are at play, it ended up being a truly substantial, uh, I think I said seismic in the report, and I stand by that moment. And it could potentially be a major turning point for the USL as a whole. Can we talk first about that calendar shift? Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. like the first thing that put, put anybody in Madison who was there for the first ever game at Bree Stevens where kickoff was delayed to plow the snow off the field. Right. We'll, we'll have concerns about a fall to spring season. What does that, there was talk of a winter break. How long mm-hmm. would that break be? And, and uh, what would that look like? I guess. And, and it could talk also about the motivation here. Yeah. 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 About yeah. Transfer window games yeah. in Madison in January. It just makes no yeah, sense. I, Maybe, maybe let's start with the why. The sense that I yeah. got is that the rationale for this isn't a simple, it isn't like a, because we're not with MLS, now we can do the opposite of MLS. It isn't just like a show your freedom sort of move. The, the sense that I got is that this comes with a lot of sporting 
interest. This comes with the idea of wanting to not have your transfer market be so closely tied to whether or not MLS clubs are willing to pay transfer fees for second and third division players within their own country, which historically MLS has seldom been very interested in parting with much more than $70,000, we'll say, for a second division player in the USL. Uh Instead, what they're seeing with players like Jonathan Gomez of Louisville City making a move uh, now to Real Sociedad, with uh, Stanley Akumu making a move at the time to Elfberg, now playing for uh, Bruges, uh, I think that they look and say, look, we have potential Christian Pirano playing now for Pacos de Ferreira uh, in Liga NOS. Like, they see that there could be a way, that may be a better way to put it, the Clubs in Europe, regardless of the level, even if we're not talking about Real Sociedad every time, a Champions League contender, even if we're talking about clubs in the second division of Spain's third division of Germany, what have you, they still have more robust scouting networks than Major League Soccer teams often do. And as a result, they are more willing to look at the second and third division of the United States because they see that as a growing market, a developing player pool. They, they want to find young American talent because they feel that they're in higher demand now than they were five years ago. That is how the market has been trending lately. As a result of that, I think the USL sees if we have our off season at the same time, and if we have our mid season at the exact same time, it's a lot easier for our players to be seen as easy to integrate into the club because they're either be exactly roughly as fit as the team they're entering or they will be in the offseason at the same point where they will be resting at the same point as the rest of the team. So they see that as a sporting benefit. Mm. What we don't, what we see, I should say, I live in Minneapolis, right? Yeah. Madison, Green Bay. Um, it's hard <laughs> to imagine playing a game anytime, I'm going to say from late November until mid-April comfortably where you're looking and saying there won't be snow or there shouldn't be snow. We never say never, right? But like, yeah, exactly. It is very, very difficult to see that five month, six month window being hospitable to playing outdoor soccer at any point. We're talking the Midwest. There isn't much of a footprint for professional soccer at this point in the Midwest, right? But we're also going to extend it into New England where they're growing their footprint significantly. There's Hartford. There's going to be Providence, Rhode Island, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, looking at you know portland maine they're looking at uh, you know like there's all of these markets where you you couldn't really pull it off and so i think that there's a couple of different models they'll have to look at i think that they will look at liga mekis um, with the apertura and the clausura um how do you split that up how do you have two different seasons akin to what the old nasl or the new nasl did i suppose where they had the fall season spring season maybe you have a longer break in the middle maybe you're looking at playing until the first week of December, taking December and January off, having a two-week preseason and then playing. You still get your 34 games in on either side, kick off in August, and then finish off play, let's say, early June. You have a two-and-a-half-month offseason, which is actually better than what you have yeah. right now, which is almost half a year off. And at that point, the start of any season is just players kicking off the rust for four weeks. So I think that there are ways that you could make this work. But I will say to me, this still feels very perspective this feels like some uh, more to me this is just my opinion now it feels like more of a half-baked idea it feels like they haven't necessarily thought through specifically mm -hmm. how do we play in all of our markets how do we I, I understand that it's not easy to play in san antonio texas in july yeah. but the flip side of that is now you're playing you're looking at playing madison in february and that's not an ideal scenario so 
I think that they still have to figure out some ways to be able to pull that off. You don't want to be split into a north-south season. I think that that's setting yourself up for failure as a league as well. Um, but I think that they're further along in some of their other initiatives, specifically the League's Cup and promotion and relegation, where those maybe would make sense to implement first. And then if they see, look, we have you know, scouting networks are coming through. We are seeing scouts. We're seeing people watching our leagues. Now maybe it makes sense to flip the calendar. But at this point, it just feels like it's something to change for the sake of change, at least from my perspective. So let's get into that pro- promotion relegation. What's the, the – you say they want to have a model to vote on by December? Right. It, it, yeah, any, is there any more specificity uh, than that that was pitched at this, at this uh, midseason meeting? Uh, it didn't sound like there was much that was put onto the table at this point. I think that that the sense that I got was that the league wanted to speak with its owners, its members, its chief sporting executives, what have you, to be able to get a sense of what the teams want out of it. You're going to be juggling two very different groups of owners. You're going to be seeing owners who bought into the USL League One at cheaper than $3 million because expansion fees have always been below $3 million to now who are saying, great, we have a chance to get into the second division. Perfect. You will have owners who have recently bought into the USL championship who paid between 10 and $15 million. We're going to say, wait a minute, why am I opening myself up to, if we're a typical expansion soccer team, which is struggling to get off the ground early, why should we be immediately putting ourselves into a place where we're going into the lesser league and the pyramid? So I think that you're going to see some very mixed opinions of how to pull it off. But assuming that Owners say, look for the greater good, revenue sharing, once it becomes more substantial, advertising potential, broadcast potential, maybe there is some value here. I think you would still need to dose it in. If you eventually go to a three up, three down, which is kind of the global standard at this point, I don't think you would see three up, three down the first year of this. I think that you would see sort of maybe you do it over the course of two seasons where you're adding it up and then you say, okay, we're going to have two teams drop, the worst two teams aggregate from two seasons, and then third worst from the championship versus the third best from League One. I think that that would be a very exciting prospect as well. Or you're saying then we do one, two, one, two, and then three through six in a postseason. And then I guess that would be like, what, 28 through 31 at that point in the championship, right? Like, I think that there are ways that you can dose it out. Maybe you just do one and one for the start. And you say, we're just going to start by dropping one, raising one. And then the standard has changed. Then we do two and two and then three and three. Whatever the models look like, I would imagine that what you will see in the first year of promotion relegation in the USL, if this comes to pass, will not be the full model. I think that they're going to need to do it in a way that is cautious that is giving teams time to recalibrate to the changing landscape these owners in the usl and in mls for that matter but in the usl they they aren't used to having a standard they have to meet you make the playoffs or you miss it but you're going to be playing in the same league next year as long as your club doesn't fold that's how american soccer works and now if they're going to get used to the finer margins if they're going to get used to the idea of a relegation battle and how to operate your club differently as a result This isn't just championship teams who need to be able to, uh, you know, avoid the drop, by the way. This is League One teams playing in facilities that would not meet D2 sanctions who need to raise that, whether it's in terms of investment, whether it's in terms of operation staff, whether it's in terms of stadiums. Uh, They will need to raise their standard as well. So you're going to see both sides need to raise their level, frankly, and, and that can only be good for American soccer, I would argue. And I think that there is a timeline, by the way, where if this goes well, if there is greater interest from abroad and domestically, if there is greater commercial potential to scale for the USL from this, 
you can't tell me MLS doesn't have to at least think about it. If it's working so well, if it is truly adding to the USL's experience for fans and for the the, the executives, for the, the commercial groups, the broadcasters, MLS is going to have to think about it. They really are. So this does have the chance to be truly a landmark change for American soccer if it's pulled off well. You just have to find a way to be able to pull it off well. And I think it's still just a little early days in terms of being able to say this is what USL promotion relegation would look like from jump. So, so when, you, when you say MLS has to think about it, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that MLS would have to think about becoming the premier division of this pyramid uh, along with USL or create something? Yeah, else I on think their that, own? yeah, they would have to figure out what that looks like. I mean, they will have a third division. My sense from sources, having also reported out the MLS D3 stuff back in June uh, with Pablo Maru, my colleague, I don't think they have any interest in second division soccer. I think that they see that as another league, the USL will run that. We don't need to get into that space, which insulates them from having to think about promotion relegation, by the way, because they don't have a second division that they could do this with. Now, if it does go well, I think that at a certain point, the USL would make the most sense because that could streamline the process. You have a functioning second division that's been around for longer than a decade already. You have a functioning third division that would have been around, you would imagine, by for at least six, eight, ten years by the time they would get to this point. So we're, we are talking 2030s at this point, I would guess, um, if I'm looking into my crystal ball here. But I do think that they couldn't ignore it. If they're seeing percentage revenue increases if they're seeing 40 percent increases you can't ignore that if they're seeing 20 percent, you shouldn't ignore that you should at least think about it because if you're getting 20 percent at a more modest level but you think that your product has that much higher potential your involvement could then raise it from 20 to 50 right i wasn't an economics major so i could be way off with these but i think that you, you see my point where yeah this is a model that fans want and that sponsors want you can't keep saying no if we now have proof that it can work in the United States sports landscape. So there is the potential. I truly think so. Assuming um, that you need that the third division has to just have literally more teams than the second, which then it's yeah. more teams than the first, right? You got to build right. League One out. It, and considering also that NISA is kind of has it wants to do this, right? Like the right. independent. The open system advocates want to do this. If if USL starts to do this successfully, do you think NISA starts to NISA clubs start to look at migrating over into League One? Well, uh, they already have, have, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's actually going to be my question, Jeff. Is do you see this as some sort of like space race scenario where USL <laughs> sees what NISA is doing and maybe trying to implement that, knowing they have the resources to maybe do it better? Yeah, I, I think that they also have just a track record of sustainability that NISA doesn't have. NISA, I mean, for all of their efforts, whether it's reasons in or out of their control, clubs that have been waffling like it was in the beginning of their existence in 2019, 2018, 2019, or the COVID pandemic, then, of course, affecting a lot of what they were able to do and making a lot of their stronger clubs um, that kind of their second tier clubs, I guess, uh, you know, you'd say Chattanooga and Detroit are like the two strongest clubs in NISA. And then below that, it was the modern Cosmos at their current state. Uh, Miami FC at the level of involvement they had at jump and then, you know, LA force. And you're looking, you know, at that point you're going through um, and it's tier two, tier three in my estimation. Um, they would have to look. And I think that there's, 
an inevitable sort of sense of where is my survival? Where am I going to be able to have the most sustainable operation? Where am I, if I jump now, does that prevent me from having to make a more drastic jump in two years, right? You have to be able to do some of the short-term forecasting if you're an owner of a lower division soccer team. So I, I think that you could see League One then, as you're alluding to, Rob, be the place that makes more sense because they need to grow that out. So it could be at least as large as the championship, if not larger, ideally. Um, I would imagine that you will see the championship end up at least 10 teams larger at the rate that they're talking expansion right now. That is pure conjecture. But I think that as you look at, they're rattling off these markets at rates of 10s and 20s in terms of who they're in conversations with. I think last fall when I talked to Justin Papadakis, who's kind of the head of expansion uh, for the USL, the son of Alec Papadakis, who's the CEO of the league, I, I think that um, he had said over 40 markets and the vast majority were League One in terms of their overall USL expansion. So at that point, that's a huge league. And maybe you're splitting that up more regional for the regular season and your postseason is what you do for promotion relegation. And that's where you have the teams, you know, you have your Greenville come in from the East, you have Madison come in from the North, you have your South and I mean, who's left at this point if North Texas is gone and they would have never been promoted anyway, but you get my drift. Like you're going to have to be able to build your map out. Um, you know, Knoxville, Tennessee, Eugene, Oregon, these markets that are coming in soon where maybe it makes more sense then to have the playoffs figure out who should get promoted so that your league isn't too big. But now I, I now I'm bringing up on a completely different topic of how do you run a team with 40 league for, for 40 uh, teams, a league with 40 teams is a nightmare to me, but it's American soccer. You're going to take their money. Yeah. You're going to give expansion teams left and right, wherever it works. And, you know, I think that the leagues are too big already. League one isn't too big, but I, I think that overall the levels are growing too fast too many MLS teams, in my opinion, too many championship teams, in my opinion, and we're still growing in both leagues. So we'll see where this ends up. But I think that that could be another thing that makes promotion relegation difficult is that unless you're able to have three or more teams move, that is not a significant enough amount of change at a percentage level for it to really be worth your while in terms of changing the landscape of the league year over year. Do you get the sense that I know to make this happen, they mentioned or you mentioned that these teams would have to kind of all be second division qualify as second division teams in terms of the facilities and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. Do you get the sense that USL has plans to maybe have a premier division that could rival MLS mm -hmm. when this pro rel scenario was all said and done? I don't think that they want to rival it per se. I think that not in a sense of we're going to take it down. Not in a sense of what the USL was positioning itself to do five, six years ago when the NASL was the second division and the USL was the third division. I think that was a very much a direct, how do we surpass them and take over their standing? I think when you look within Major League Soccer, it's more of a, we can be the soccer, the soccer fans authentic answer. We can be the pyramid where, yeah, maybe it's a lower level. Maybe instead of markets like, you know, instead of the largest markets that MLS is able to pull off, you know, we're in the second tier markets, quote unquote, in the third tier markets, but they're still big cities because this country is so large. It's not like you only have five yeah. markets to choose from, 
right? Like what you would run into in say England, where you'd have five or six cities where you say, that's obviously where I'd put a team and the rest of it is very provincial. That's not really the case in the United States with just how many major cities there are in this country. So in that sense, I don't think that they would be looking at it as a, how do we take MLS down? I think it would be a, we're the authentic answer to fans who are more used to waking up on their Saturdays rather than staying up on a Saturday for major league soccer. Whereas MLS then becomes the NFL of soccer in this country. And it's more of the franchise model. You're running into more of this, you know, interleague trading instead of transfers. You're running into drafts, right? Like these things that American sports fans, general sports fans are more used to rather than trying to educate them on promotion relegation and on, you know, parachute payments and solidarity payments and all of these things that American sports fans usually don't have the bandwidth to try to comprehend, frankly. Uh, we really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. You got to run, but can you mention briefly uh, the league's cup and what that uh, would look like? Yeah. I, I think that at the start that would, un that would be unlikely to involve league two. Um, I, I would not promotion relegation, by the way, would not involve league two because that is not a professional league. So it would be very difficult to get those teams up to the standard. But uh, the idea would simply be probably during the season, or if you run into a long off season, this is what you're doing for your summer scrimmages so that teams aren't losing all their revenue. But then you would have league one and championship clubs playing against each other round by round, do a draw. I don't know if that'd be regionalized, if that'd be fully national. I would guess regionalized up until a certain level, like maybe the quarterfinals or something. And then it's free for all, which is the case for the U S open cup these days. But I think that, the idea would be USL only teams lifting hardware, more meaningful competition between the two leagues, be able to start to build some of these little rivalries that run you run into in cups only where it's like, oh, we keep drawing the same team because we're regional, but we keep losing to that team. So how do we finally get past them? That's only good for these teams to have more of those rivals. And in turn, that makes it so if one of the teams is promoted or relegated, they already have history with some of these clubs outside of the US Open Cup. So I think that that is one actually that could come online sooner than either promotion relegation or the idea of flipping your calendar. I think it is very easy to see a mid-season cup coming to life mm -hmm. as soon as next year, frankly, as long as teams are on board with it. Um, but I, I think that, that teams want that. Teams want to be able to have more games, more gate receipts, always good. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that that's a tough sell whatsoever at this point. Is it a tough sell to fans, though? I, I, you talked about American sports fans' bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Are American sports fans, casual sports fans, able to comprehend two tournaments plus a league all at the same time, you know, all in the course yeah. of a year? Uh, or, or are USL fans just more soccer knowledgeable, I guess? Yeah, I think that they're getting more. I think that they're more knowledgeable than a lot of my peers in the media give them credit for, in my experience anyway. Uh, I, I think that what you see is – if you're just using England as an example, because it's convenient and most people know it the best outside of the convoluted American soccer period pyramid, the Carabao Cup, as it's known for sponsorship reasons, is the EFL Cup, is the League Cup. That is clearly the third trophy out of three that teams from, I'm going to say, the championship and the Premier League want to win. Um it is mostly played at the beginning of the season. And then your final is like months after the semifinal, which is strange, but uh, it is not the focus unless you're Pep Guardiola and you just like lifting trophies uh, outside of that. However, they would rather win the FA cup. They would rather win the U S open cup in this country because then you are truly playing against every rung of the pyramid. You're playing against amateur teams. You're playing against major league soccer and everything in between. That is a competition that gets more people excited. You are seeing more of the pyramid. You are playing against Detroit City, Chattanooga, LA Forest, all of these teams that are also thriving in the third division in NISA. 
and it's a little bit more inclusive. But I think that if you want to make sure that, you know, we have a USL team winning a cup every single year, well, then the USL makes its own cup. I guess, I mean, that's the easiest way you do it is you make a trophy. No one else can win. NISA can't win. MLS can't win that one. NPSL can't win that one. So we, you know, great. Good for you. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And by the way, I think that that's a tournament you can include League Two in at a point. Because if you just say you are always hosting and you're going to bring in a championship or League One team once a year, uh, that's an easy sell to their fans. Because now they're saying, okay, let's bring a professional team in for a meaningful game where they're not going to want to be embarrassed and lose. That's an easy sell to our fan base and to our markets as a whole. Last and most important question here, Jeff, and we appreciate your time. You used a word in this article that I've never seen before in my life. And so (laughs) I want to get your definition on it. Sounds good. Uh, Triumvirate. What does what does triumvirate mean? Uh, try. Let's break that down for a second. Um, <laughs> try means three. Sound it out. Yep. So it is uh, historically, if I remember right, it is. Oh, it's always Rome or Greece, right? I'm gonna say Rome, where there was like a trio of leaders. If you've seen Loki, spoiler alerts. It's the idea of the three timekeepers, right? And you see it, and that's like the triumvirate, where they are the ones who are. Uh, leading the entirety of the masses, but it's too much power for one person. So you need to split it up across three and maybe they're specialists, maybe they're not. But then the idea here is that the third division of American soccer is unfortunately getting branched out, out of any comprehension. And we have three different leagues. We have the developmental league. We have the independent open system advocating league. And then we have USL league one that I think is still defining itself. I don't think people know what within the USL know what USL league one is supposed to be anymore. So uh, that's a topic for another podcast maybe, but uh, yes, it is three entities within a similar plane of power. And right. vocabulary lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Ruder from the athletic. We appreciate your time. Not only are we going to let you go because you're a busy guy, but my voice is on its very last leg here. So uh, we appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we'll always keep, keep track of what you're doing on the athletic. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Jeff.